Now this morning, Romans chapter 8, verses 16 to 27. Romans 8, verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, and hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Well, let's pray for God's help as we study this. Our Father, we pray for clarity for me as I try to explain this. We pray for attentiveness from us all and willingness and obedience. We pray for assurance for Christians, particularly those here in this building groaning. We pray, Lord, for those who are not yet convinced Christians that the description of the Christian life here might strike them as real, as relevant, as persuasive, and so draw them to the Lord Jesus in whom salvation is to be found. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we continue our series on Romans 8 on Sunday mornings. I encourage you to listen online if you've missed any of the talks, or listen again if you listen to them once and would benefit from listening again. Uh, one of the dangers of taking a step-by-step approach through the chapter is we can miss the wood for the trees. Um, and so in the Connect magazine, I've tried to describe the wood for you. Um, please read that. It connects it all together, but don't read it now in the next 20 minutes. And uh, thank you for the continuing discussions and questions on Romans. Please keep talking about the gospel. It's really great when, as the minister, you get to hear people talking about the gospel. The, the, the New Testament is full of rich uh, material. The Old Testament is. Much of the New Testament is concerned with churches keeping stable. Letters written to churches to keep them strong and united and clear. 
That's uh, very helpful stuff, and we spend a lot of our time looking at that material. But, but Romans 8 takes us to the very heart of what the gospel is. And really, it's when you understand the gospel in its depths. It's when you understand what the pillars of the gospel are, and when you get underground and see how deep the foundations are dug, that you really begin to understand how to live the Christian life. Now, we've seen in our studies in Romans that Romans 8 is written for a reason. It's not just a, a brilliant uh, theological treatise in the middle of the book of Romans. It's written for a reason. And the two big reasons Paul writes at Romans 8 are to give Christians assurance and to deal with the doubts that rob us of that assurance. So Paul writes Romans 8 to say, be rest assured in the truth of the gospel. And let me deal with these doubts that cause you to doubt the gospel is true. Two big doubts. One, the ongoing battle that I have in my life and you have in your life, if you're a Christian, with temptation and sin. How is it that I still battle with that stuff that I've been saved from? That's uh, the first half of Romans 8 that we've dealt with now in detail. And the second big area of uh, doubt that Paul addresses is the problem of suffering and uh, death. And uh, it's not a hypothetical question, it's a very real question as we look out on a world that is suffering. And uh, it's, uh, of course, close to us all. And that's Paul's uh, main focus in these verses and what follows to the end of the chapter. The kind of questions we ask in relation to suffering and death. You know, if you do a, a talk at an evangelistic event for people who are not Christians, one of the big stumbling block questions is suffering. And very often as we do these talks, Christians come up and speak to me afterwards and say, it's not, it's not a non-question when you are a Christian. <laughs> suffering and death. And uh, the kind of real questions we ask, is the gospel really true? What have I been saved from, if that's my experience? After all, Paul has described the gospel in Romans 8 as one of life and peace. Is it true? Does God really love me as a Christian? And perhaps the most pointed question of all when it comes to suffering and death, what is the difference between someone who is a Christian and someone who is not a Christian? Is there any difference? And these are real questions, honest questions. And Paul's uh, answers are powerful and honest. Now, let me just immediately say to you, it is okay to express your doubts to God because he wants to respond to these doubts that we have. If you're not a Christian, uh, let me encourage you uh, or throw this out to you to consider in the next 20 minutes or so. When you study a passage like Romans 8, what strikes me is how realistic it is it's how the gospel is explained, not as a kind of pie in the sky or above the reality of life or somewhere over there or somewhere abstracted from reality. The gospel is explained in Romans 8, indeed the whole Bible, right at the coalface of life. That's why it's so powerful. When uh, we were away for a couple of days this week in Northumberland on holiday and we took the children uh, to see a coal mine, it was much more interesting than it sounds. And uh, they took you, uh, not literally because it would be against health and safety, they took you in some kind of exhibition to the coal face. And there you were underground in this four-foot gap. And you're there at the coal face, and, 
and, and the, the coal is being chipped out. And in some ways, the, the, the Romans 8 takes us to the coal face of life. It doesn't protect us. It takes us right down there to where life really is, suffering and death. And if the Christian gospel is not articulate, relevant, and powerful, and persuasive, and answers these questions, it's not true. Don't believe it. But if you're not a Christian, and it appears to make sense in these areas, then I would challenge you to find anything else, any other message in the world that does. So these are the kind of questions Paul addresses. Now, if you dig out the service sheet, you'll see some notes there. Let me refer you to that and uh, so we can build up the logic. First heading you'll see there, heirs of a guaranteed inheritance. And Andy spoke in detail about these verses last week. So let me just build the link, verses 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. If we are children, we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. As children, we are heirs, heirs of Christ's inheritance. What is that inheritance? It is two things. One, a new body. This body you see before you is not the finished article, nor yours. It's a resurrection body that is part of our inheritance, a new body without even the effects or presence of sin. Paul has talked about that. Verse 11, if the Spirit raised Christ from the dead, that same Spirit that is in you will raise you from the dead. That's part of our inheritance, our new bodies. Second part, the new creation, the new world. Paul refers to that in verse 21 of Romans 8. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the children of God. A new creation, a resurrected earth, free from the presence and the effects of sin. Just as a footnote to that, when we speak of the new creation, it's not a kind of another world somewhere at the far end of the galaxy, in a land far, far away. Where's the new creation going to be? It is right here on this earth. It is this earth. So, go into space and look from space at this earth, this planet that we live on. The new creation is this planet resurrected, a new earth, a new creation. That is continuity between your body now and your resurrection body. That is continuity between this earth, this creation, and the new creation. So, that's our inheritance. One, new body. Two, new creation. Last week, I was preaching uh, up in Lewis, and uh, somebody asked me at the end of one of the talks, um, there were a great many talks, at the end of one of them, somebody said, how do you know this is true? Isn't that a great question? Prove to me it's true. Prove to me that this inheritance will really come, because it does seem like a million miles away in a land far, far away. It does seem like that to us. How do you know it's true? How do you know it's guaranteed just to say that if you're a Christian and you think that what I've described about the inheritance for the Christian is too good to be true, then you've begun to grasp the truth of the gospel. It is too good to be true, humanly speaking, but it is true. How do you know it's true? How do you know the future is guaranteed for you as a Christian? Well, one, the Word of God says it's true, but how do you know that's true? Okay, the spirit that is within you is the spirit of adoption, of sonship, as Andy explained last week. The spirit that is within you that enables you to call Father, God, tells you it is true. How do you know, though, that the spirit is within you? Your life is changing. 
How do you ultimately know, though, that the Spirit is within you, that the inheritance is true, because, objective fact, Jesus Christ died and was raised. In the end of the day, it all comes back to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I would caution you always to uh, justify who you are in Christ Jesus on the basis of what and how you feel. There will be moments when you feel like the Holy Spirit is in you, reassuring you, comforting you, strengthening you. Oftentimes we don't. Base your faith on who Jesus is and what he has done, his death and resurrection. So we have a glorious inheritance and we are heirs of it, but we haven't got it yet. Prince Charles is uh, heir to the throne because his mum is his mum and she is queen. It's the adoption family language, but he's not king yet. Some of you may be heirs to a fortune or something much more modest. It has guaranteed you the heir, but you've not received it yet. My granny, for my birthday when I was a little boy, used to give me premium bonds. My other granny gave me Lego. (laughs) The premium bonds, she promised me, would be worth a great deal when I was 21. They were worth nothing by the time I was 21. And I remember thinking as a little boy when I was seven or eight and I got these. uh, She was a nice granny, though, so don't think my grannies were not nice, both of them. Premium bonds are as good as Lego. I used to think of, of, she would tell me that one day, one day you will get the value of these. There's a now and a not yet to being an heir. Now you're an heir of that future inheritance, it's guaranteed, but you've not got it yet. You've not yet come into your inheritance. You've got all the legal papers, the adoption papers, but you've not yet got it. Now, the now and the not yet is a really important principle for the Christian life. There's a now in terms of my experience now as a Christian, and there's a not yet in terms of my experience as a Christian. And that principle of the now and the not yet runs right across the Bible, and it's really important we get the right balance between the now and the not yet. Why? If we think we should be experiencing now what the Bible says is not yet, then we will be deeply discouraged and filled with doubts because our experience will not live up to our expectations, whether of our own making or what someone else has taught us or said to us. See how important it is to teach the Bible faithfully. You see how dangerous it is to promise a new Christian that they will get more of the not yet now than the Bible says they will. What happens when they don't? They get discouraged. They walk away. Never promise what the Bible does not promise. There's another side to that. Never promise less than the Bible promises too. So what is the principle that runs right across the New Testament? What is the balance between the now and the not yet in terms of my experience as a Christian? Look at what Paul says, verse 17, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Provided we suffer with him, that is the now, in order that we may also be glorified with him. 
that is the not yet. Suffering, now, and glory, not yet. And it's not just Paul. That was another question I was asked last weekend. Isn't that just Paul? I said, no, it's not Paul, it's Peter as well. So think of Peter's first letter, how he begins his first letter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again into a living hope, a hope for an inheritance, the not yet, that can never perish, spoil or fade, that is kept in heaven for you. And you are being kept for it in that, that not yet inheritance, you greatly rejoice, though now, 1 Peter, you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of struggles and sufferings. That's the now. Suffering now and glory not yet. Now, maybe someone here is thinking that this is all a bit gloomy. Let me come back at that with this kind of kind of question. Does now my experience, which the Bible says is suffering in a suffering world, ring as true or false? Well, the longer I live and the older I get, the more true it becomes. What is the suffering we experience now? Well, it's two things. One, it's suffering we experience because we are Christians. Naomi prayed for the uh, horrendous stuff going on in the world with Islamic State. If you're a Christian in a place like Syria or Iraq or Sudan or even parts of China, North Korea, you experience intense suffering because you are a Christian. We don't. We're thankful for that. And let's not pretend we do. We just don't. We do experience marginalization being isolated, all that kind of stuff, a little bit of friction, but not like that. And also as Christians, we experience the suffering from living with a body that is dying and a world that is dying. We experience suffering from living with a dying body and a dying world. Let me just list some of the symptoms of living with a body that is dying and a world that is dying. How about uh, the whole realm of anxiety-related disorders that people face. It's everywhere. It's crippling. Or worry, or fear of illness. We're thankful that uh, in West Africa, the Ebola crisis is being brought under control. In one way, it's only being brought under control because of fear that we might catch it in the Western world. But it's being brought under control. But the, the panic that spreads through the globe at some new mutated virus or depression. Depression, in my view, and I may be wrong, is the hardest and bleakest and blackest of all illnesses. Or cancer. Do you believe the adverts for cancer and they're great and we need to give lots of money? Do you believe that we will beat as humankind cancer? 
I threw that out in the first service, full of doctors. None none of them came up to me afterwards and said, no, no, you're wrong. We're not going to beat cancer. Jesus has and will in the new creation. There'll be no more mourning or sickness or crying or tears. Or heart disease. We don't do too well in Scotland for heart disease. It's due to iron brew and chips. We do slightly better than a city in the West. Or what about the whole spectrum of compulsive disorders? It's everywhere. It's crippling. It's disabling. Strokes. A life changed in an instant. The list could go on and on. Um, You should go on to NHS 24 and read all the things you can catch. And then for each illness you can catch, read the complications bit at the bottom of the page. And then phone NHS 24 and they'll calm you down. But that's the world we live in, isn't it? And just take your normal family. I encountered many families last week in Lewis. They're just like our families. They have problems and struggles and battles. The list can go on and on. There are dark valleys in all of our lives. And there is one dark, dark valley, the darkest valley of all, the valley of the shadow of death. And we feel the pain and the grief personally and as we watch others suffering. Indeed, that can be harder, watching others suffering. Let me pause and mark something down. To suffer is normal Christian experience as we live in this world. If you suffer because of your faith, if you suffer the effects of living in a dying body, in a dying world, do not let anyone tell you that God does not love you. That is not true. Do not let anyone tell you that God doesn't care. That is not true. Now, I say that, and that might jar for some of you. And and bear with Romans 8, particularly next week when we get on to verses like, in all things God works together for the good to those who love them. I've got a real struggle on my hands because between that verse and you is me next week. Trying to explain that to you. But it is true. To suffer is normal Christian experience. Here is the Apostle Paul explaining the gospel in the realm of human suffering. Groaning, groaning, groaning. Now, in uh, verse 19 onwards, Paul gets right to the heart of our experience of what it's like to live now as we wait for the not yet of glory. Before he does that, though, we get verse 18, which is a kind of preface to what follows. Uh, It's also to give us much-needed perspective. Let's read carefully what he says in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What does he mean? Does he mean that the sufferings in this life, hard as they are, are not worth comparing to the glory greater as it is in the world to come? I don't think he means that. That's too harsh, I think. What I think he means is simply that the sufferings of this age, this life, is short because this life is short compared to the glory of eternity, which is long. Molly, who's gone to be with the Lord, wouldn't mind me saying today, and all with Bertie, that Molly lived a long life. She was 95. She was married for nearly 61 years to Bertie. 
That's about as long as you get in this life. What is that compared to millions of years in eternity? The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. That's what he means. It's what Peter meant in 1 Peter 1 when he said, you may for a little while suffer grief. By a little while, he means this life. For the Christian, this life is not even a preface for the life to come. It is hardly a word on the page of the book that is everlasting life. One of the hardest things for us to grasp as Christians, though, is an eternity perspective. A glory that will be never-ending compared to this short life of suffering. Now, with that perspective, in verses 19 to 27, Paul gets right to the heart of our experience of what it's like to live now as Christians as we wait the not yet of glory. And uh, we'll go some way through this and come back to uh, some of it next time. Now, I've summed it up. You'll see it on the sheet as groaning in hope. That's uh, the language Paul uses. Look at the groaning language, verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves who are the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly. Who says the Bible is not real? Groaning. Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Groaning. Creation groans, we groan inwardly, the Holy Spirit groans in us and for us. That is the description of the Christian living in this world, groaning. In a world that is groaning, helped by the Spirit who groans for us and in us. It's real. Christian faith is not some kind of pie-in-the-sky escapism. Here we are at the coalface groaning, groaning language, but also hoping language. The end of verse 20, in hope, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 23, we ourselves groan, Verse 24, for in this hope, groaning in hope, we were saved. And uh, when the Christian talks about hope, it's not, let's hope it all comes right in the end. It's not fingers crossing hope, it's certain hope. See what Paul gives us here. This is how we live. This is the Christian life in the now as we wait for the not yet. Groaning, groaning and hoping. Both are there, groaning and hoping. What is the dominant note? One preacher on Romans 8 says, hoping wins by a short head over groaning, but just by a short head. There is no cause in the Christian life for hopelessness and despair, but there is reality and realism and honesty that we will groan. And if you want to know if it's all right to groan, The Holy Spirit, God himself, groans inside of us, for us, and with us. Groaning, hoping, hoping just edges its head above the water of groaning. 
There's another phrase Paul uses. You see it in verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing. Verse 23, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. Groaning, hoping, eager, longing. That's the anatomy of the Christian's soul living now as we wait, the not yet of glory, groaning, hoping, longing. What will we do at Molly's funeral? Groan and hope. See, the the two run together in our experience now. There's nothing worse than a Christian funeral where there is only hoping and no grieving and no groaning. It's not real. But there's nothing more bleak than going to a funeral where there is only groping and no hoping. That is fundamentally bleak. All you can do at a funeral where there is no Christian gospel and no Christian hope is pretend that the person hasn't really died. Or read a poem like, death is nothing at all. The person has merely slipped into the next room. That is lies. The Christian experience is groaning, hoping, and longing. So in the middle of the pit of the black dog of depression, I see Christians groaning. That is Well, that is what the Holy Spirit does for you and with you. And you see Christians hoping. That is what the Holy Spirit does in us as we long for that release to that eternity, to that new creation. Now, there's the chalk face of this life living in a dying body, in a dying world, groaning and hoping and longing Now, before we uh, get to the bit when Paul talks about us groaning, he begins by talking about the creation groaning in verses 19 to 22. And in these verses 19 to 22, uh, Paul describes the creation as it is now, the world in which we live. Because of humanity's rejection of God, the creation was subjected to a curse. It is in bondage to corruption and decay. And Paul uses in verses 19 to 22 the language of Genesis 3. Creation is groaning. Environmentally, it is groaning. Economically, morally, socially, groans. Now, I could give you a whole lot of statistics as to how the creation is, is groaning. Uh, I've got a whole lot written down here. For example, uh, Climate change, if it continues, I don't know if this is true, I I expect it is, is likely to expose an additional 2 billion people to malaria by the 2080s. Malaria, one of the world's top three killers. So on and so forth. Or Ebola, the latest virus to mutate. Last weekend, I was preaching in Stornoway, as I said, on the island of Lewis. Last Saturday was a beautiful sunny day. The locals looked at me kind of cannily and said, this is not normal. And how come when you come, it's all sunny? And uh, we stood on the western edge of Lewis. Once you get to the western edge of Lewis, the only thing left is ocean and Newfoundland. That's a lot of ocean too. And there was just gentle lapping waves. By Sunday, it had returned to normal. Horizontal rain and a howling gale. 
At least I thought it was a gale. And as I preached on groaning on Sunday night in the church in Stornoway, the wind was whistling around the church and the wind bashing against the walls and, and creation is groaning. You stand on the edge of the western tip of Lewis and look out to the full force of the Atlantic in a storm. You hear the groaning of the waves. The creation is groaning, but not moaning. There is a world of a difference. For the creation like us groans in hope. Groaning, hoping, longing. As the waves roar and as the wind roars, it groans in hope. Africa, these countries blighted by these terrible diseases, the physical countries, the earth, the forests, the mountains, are groaning in hope of their redemption. We tend to think of the achievements of Jesus' death and resurrection at a personal level, that Jesus' death dealt with my fundamental problem that is sin. But what is it that holds our world in its dying? It is the same fundamental problem of human sin and the curse. Jesus died and was raised and reversed the curse. And that means that we are saved, but the creation will be saved. This planet will be resurrected to a new creation. It groans in hope. But it's not just the creation, it is we also who are groaning. Verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, Paul is not contradicting in any way what he has said earlier. He is not saying, well, after all, you're not really children yet. You're not really heirs yet. He's not contradicting that. He's saying, yes, you are heirs. The Holy Spirit guarantees your inheritance, but you're not there yet. Of course, that rings through with life. We're not in a new creation where there is no mourning or sickness or suffering or death or pain. And your body that I see and this body that you see, thank God, is not the final destination for my soul. It's a new body, but we're not there yet. And we groan, and we groan, and we despair, and we cry. But we groan in hope. Groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Hope that is seen is not hope. Groaning in hope the sure and certain hope of future glory. There's nothing worse. There's nothing worse than a person who says life is wonderful. There's nothing worse than a Christian who says life is wonderful, for it's a lie. There's nothing worse than a Christian who says life is hopeless. For it's not, that is equally a lie. You see how balanced, sensible, and real Paul is? Groaning, hoping, longing. And when you get these 
in perspective. Groaning does not become moaning. What does it leave you? The very last word of verse 25. We wait for it with patience. Patience. You didn't uh, know Molly and Bertie. They're in my mind, obviously, for understandable reasons. Uh, Molly, the wonderful Christian lady, the last 10 or 15 years of her life were, were really a, a lot of groaning. She couldn't get a church. She's frail. Her mind began to go a bit. Not the gospel. She groaned a lot. She groaned a lot for Bertie. But she never, ever moaned because she groaned hoping for eternity. Always. Very striking when you meet people like that. And of course it has its greatest power when somebody is at that stage of life where they are groaning. How come is it they are hoping and longing? Because the Holy Spirit lives in them. But it's really hard. And if we're honest as Christians, all of us, there are times when living in this body, in this world, is too much to bear. Whether it is physical illness or psychological illness. And there are times when we look at the suffering in other people's lives and that is too much to bear. And so verses 26 and 27 are such encouraging verses. Now we're going to come back to these verses next week because I don't really understand them yet. I don't really, and I want to understand and, and help you understand what it means that the Spirit who lives in you is groaning in words that are too, groanings that are too deep for words to express in accordance with the will of God as he prays. What does that really mean? And what on earth does Paul mean when he says in the next verse that for those who love Jesus, all things work together for their good? One of these phrases that, that is so misused. What does it really mean? That's next week. For now, what I want you to know is that when you groan, and in your groaning, the Holy Spirit who lives in you is groaning for you in words and in ways that are too deep to express in human language, and always in accordance with the perfect will of God. So you're groaning. Maybe you're groaning really here now. In some way, the Holy Spirit is groaning for you and with you and in you, praying to God for you. And how true it is in the hardest times when we feel the effects of suffering and struggling most keenly. What do you, and what do I at least, maybe you don't struggle to do in the hardest times. I struggle to speak to the one person to whom I should speak. To pray. And what does God do when we are struggling and groaning so much that we can hardly pray? Does he rebuke us? Does he chastise us? Well, sometimes he needs to do that. What does he do here in Romans 8? He tells us it's okay because the Spirit is praying for you as you groan. I met a couple in Stornoway last week. They lost their son age 21, uh, at sea. And he told me, as he looked at me in the eye, he told me that these verses in Romans are true. 
Now, he may be utterly deluded, or else the Holy Spirit lives in his heart, and he knows Jesus. Now, conclusion. What is the arena of doubt that Paul addresses here, suffering and death? In light of the reality of suffering and death, my first-hand experience of it as a Christian, is the gospel really true? What have I been saved from? Does God really love me as a Christian? It does not look like it or feel like it much of the time. Does he really love me? And when it comes to suffering and death, what is the difference between somebody who is not a Christian and me, a Christian? And Paul's answer in these verses of Romans, well, Christian, you are an heir of a glorious inheritance. And that inheritance is a resurrection body in a resurrected earth. It is guaranteed. And if you doubt that it's guaranteed, well, look to the Spirit that indwells you in your changed life and look to the cross that sits behind the Holy Spirit's indwelling of you. The proof is in Christ's death and resurrection. You're heirs, but you've not yet come into your inheritance. There's a now and the not yet, the now is suffering, this body, this world. The glory is not yet. And so, Christian, when you live out your days in this life, it's okay to groan. Groaning in hope and longing. There's the language of the Christian, groaning, hoping, longing. Is it really okay to groan? Yes, because God in you groans with you. Creation groans, you groan, the Spirit groans. So what is the difference between someone who is not a Christian and someone who is a Christian? Well, eternity for the Christian is a glorious inheritance. Eternity for the person who is not a Christian is everlasting judgment. Suffering for the Christian. Groaning in hope. The Spirit groaning with us and for us. Suffering for the person who is not a Christian. Groaning without hope. And groaning alone. And when we find ourselves in the darkest valley of all, the Christian is not alone, for God is with them. And the person who is not a Christian is all alone. We're going to sing the 23rd Psalm in a minute. It's uh, about groaning and valleys and the darkest valley of all, the valley of the shadow of death. Very striking that all through the Psalm, God is referred to as he, him, he, him. As if God in life much of the time is on the far side of the field. That's where the shepherd is. We're the sheep over here. He's over there. But in the valley of the shadow of death, the pronoun shifts from he to you. For you are with me in the valley of the shadow of death. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, let me challenge you to go anywhere in the world and find a message and a gospel and a truth that cuts straight at the cool face of life like the Christian gospel. 
This is not kind of some kind of pie-in-the-sky ideology. The Christian gospel is able to take you in your mind's eye to your own funeral and to tell you that, yes, there will be groaning, but if you are in Christ Jesus, there will be hoping and longing and glory in the world to come. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the honesty and the realism of the Christian gospel. We thank you that while we are children and heirs, there is a now and a not yet dimension to our experience. The not yet is a new body and a new creation. The now is groaning. Thank you for that uh, comfort of realism. Groaning and hoping and longing. Thank you that in the midst of groaning, there is hoping. Always hope. Sure and certain hope. And longing for that final adoption as sons, new bodies and a new creation. Lord, we thank you most of all that the Holy Spirit in us groans for us. Help us to understand next week all that that means and entails. And if we're not yet a Christian, Lord, we pray that the realism of the Christian gospel expressed at the coalface of real life would lead us to Jesus Christ and to his cross for the salvation that is to be found in him and in him alone, that we might no longer groan without hope, but groan with hope, and that we might die secure in Christ and not without him, and that we might face a glorious future inheritance and not everlasting judgment. The offer is always there to come to Jesus. So come and trust him for your life and salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.